your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. You're all originals. You've all made America better, a better place, and you've made us seem a better place in the eyes of the people of the world. I'm Ian Wilder. I'm Fiona Hatch. I'm Sarah Nels. I'm Tyler Katzenberger. And I'm Allison Keeley. You're listening to 1050 Bascom, a podcast brought to you by the UW-Madison Political Science Department. On this episode of 1050 Bascom, we're joined by Dr. Kate Phelps, a lecturer in UW-Madison's Gender and Women's Studies Department, who specializes in body politics, feminist theory, and fat studies. This semester, Dr. Kate is teaching Food for Thought, a class about the politics behind our world food systems, which we'll take a deeper look at in today's episode. Dr. Kate, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. Okay, so today we're focusing in on your class, Food for Thought, which is offered through the Gender and Women's Studies Department under course number 320. Uh, Can you give us a quick overview of your class? Sure. Uh, So the course is called Food for Thought, an Intersectional Approach. Uh, And that intersectional framework part of it is is really crucial because what we're interested in is the human element of how our food gets from source to stomach, in effect. Uh, All of the different players that are part of these food systems, how it relates to and intersects with our embodiments, our circumstances, our identities. Uh, So it's really taking a social science approach uh, to the question of food politics. In other words, how are our food, our identities, our communities existing within these systems of power as it relates to food. How long have you been teaching the class? I first taught the class in spring of 2022. I was very, I always get very excited. The the cool thing about teaching in gender and women's studies, at least in my circumstances, is they give me quite a bit of freedom to design courses around things that excite me. Um, And I've, I've been teaching a, uh, a course on fat studies and really thinking about body politics uh, since the spring of 2020. And what felt like a kind of natural extension of that and something I wanted to learn more about was this question of food and how do we as individuals relate to these systems of access. So uh, I was given the opportunity to create a special topics course And I thought, this is my chance. (laughs) So uh, I built this uh, syllabus and started teaching it in spring of 2022. So I've taught it a few times at this point. And what is your vision or mission for the class that you hope your students take away from it? Well, I think the interesting thing is that food is a common denominator of existence. It's something we all need. It's often uh, situated as synonymous with culture in a lot of ways. Um, But what's so interesting about that is that this thing that makes up our lives in such significant ways is actually a fairly small percentage of like what we spend our money on, relatively speaking. Uh, It's something that fuels us through the day, but we don't spend a lot of time really thinking about how is it that I have access to these things or what, what mechanisms am I engaged with? So I want my vision for the course is really sort of multifaceted in that I want people to think about their relationships to food in relation to power individually. I want them to think about it interpersonally and I want them to think about it institutionally, right? So how are we existing in this system, but what does it mean in terms of everyday behavior? 
and identity as well. So that's the broad vision. And also just to have some fun, because I got to be honest, it's rough out there. The food system, who, if we can call it that, is, um, uh, it's nuanced, it's tough. We spend a lot of time in that class engaged in difficult subject matter. We talk a great deal about exploitation. Our system is bent on that. And so it's important that we also engage the levity. We talk about food we love. We share recipes. We're having a picnic at the end of the semester, right? Yes. Um, so wanting, wanting to engage the joy of it as well, because food is so joyful. So that's, and that's really the vision is to plug people in as political subjects in relation to food and get them thinking about it, get them thinking critically about it, but also to embrace that joy and curiosity of learning around food. I follow up. I don't know if you know, but I just want to, can you talk more about the exploitation? Yes. Uh, so, well, and I'll just provide in just an example, um, is that the majority of our agricultural labor force in terms of food production is immigrants largely from Mexico and Latin America, many of whom are undocumented. We don't even have exact numbers on that, but there is not straightforward path to citizenship for people that are doing the most important work. In other words, without a immigrant and migrant labor force, because often communities of people that are doing this labor move season to season to where the work is available to them, um, relies very heavily on policies that are not in service to those communities. And we absolutely rely, I mean, it, it is how we eat. It is central to how we eat. Uh, and I think there's a really significant invisibilization of that. We don't talk about gender around that and there are very significant gendered impacts of that. Um, so, and that, that's really just sort of one example of that, but I can talk about more as well. <laughs> that, when you were, as you were talking, it also just made me think of COVID and, and who had to work. You bet. We all needed to go to the grocery store and who needed to be there. Well, and when you think about what was, and people were put into impossible situations. I don't, I also don't want to dismiss what people, what farmers deal with as well. But the vast majority of land ownership in the United States is because of dispossession, is because of the forced migration of native populations, of black populations. The amount of black farmers and black owned land that we have is utterly abysmal compared to what it was 100 years ago. Um, with COVID, another thing that occurred was being essential laborers these these people were really locked down in effect they weren't allowed to see family i mean they were they weren't allowed to socialize because the production and and processing of that food was so crucial um but it was i mean deeply deeply isolating and invisibilizing for those communities yeah where do these inequities stem from in like a historical lens and that's kind of talking both about covid but also like you know, before the pandemic, how do you feel, like, what's the origin of these inequalities? If I had, hmm, that is a huge question. I mean, we could have just multiple, we could, you want to hang out all day? Let's do it. I mean, because we spend 
15 weeks on this, and I feel like in many ways we barely scratched the surface. But if I had to, if I was going to put it, let's say, in a United States context specifically, historically, I think it's absolutely crucial that we point to the trans transatlantic slave trade. Um, many people stolen from West African nations were stolen because of their agricultural skill sets. Um, and knowledges and those inequities come from again the forced migration the dispossession of land promises that were made uh in the wake of the civil war around 40 acres and a mule that were not delivered upon um sharecropping programs the great migration has a, a lot to do with urbanization and industry and the kinds of access that people have to food, I mean, is really historically bent on uh, a, on the maintenance of a white supremacist system, I think is, is the most straightforward way to, to talk about it. Um, so slavery and I gotta, I gotta say, Protestantism <laughs> is also a big one, uh, just around this idea of how Protestantism is a, is really a precursor to capitalist thought, and that it you are if you have let's say for example you have a plentiful crop that year that is evidence that you are being rewarded right so that that idea of um, a work ethic that is really but is really bent on the uh, exploitative labor of people that are viewed as lesser. Yeah, and zooming out, what do food politics and inequities in food production look like on a global scale? Woohoo! Um, <laughs> well, what's really interesting is that we do we when we talk about something like global food governance, we don't actually have a centralized governance around food. We have, and sometimes when I history really gets me, I will lay awake at night thinking about how the United Nations is less than a century old, right? And uh, the, pro the projects that it en endeavors upon. But we don't have a, we don't have global food governance. We have international aid efforts. We have organizations like the Food and Agricultural o Organization. We have the World Food Program that's designed to intervene when there are humanitarian crises. Uh, war, conflict, um, national disasters, right? But and and there's a real transnational effort around that, but there's no governance, no centralized governance in that way. Um, so it's it's really a significant effort to kind of pull things together globally. I want to shout out real quick some amazing international organizations, transnational organizations. La Via Campesina is a peasant and small-scale agrarian-run organization that spans dozens of countries and has major networks all over the world, seed-sharing programs, but really attempting to engage sustainability, biodiversity, and they're doing it in ways that's a recognition of, I'm gonna invest in my community here we're going to share knowledge. We're going to cross these borders. Um, but it's, it's really about creating opportunities for access and, equi and equity uh, to folks that have historically had less of it. Because one of the things we're seeing 
in terms of global food governance is the expansion of a global marketplace and global capitalism. So things like seeds, the majority of seeds are owned and controlled by four companies globally. This is this sort of monoculture that's happening around what is farmed and mechanized farming um, could it could is having really dire impacts on biodiversity, uh, sustainability, and how we think about the future of food. And at a local impact, is there a way you can kind of see um, this lack of governance or um, this agglomeration of um, just a few companies controlling a lot of the world's um, food resources? Can you actually see that on your store shelves at all? Yes. Well, I think, for example, so two miles that way, I'm sorry, I'm pointing west, um, <laughs> two miles that way uh, towards Hildale Shopping Center, if you are familiar. Mm -hmm. There is a Metro Market, a Century Metcalfs, a Target, and a brand new massive Whole Foods. Those grocery stores are all within 0.2 miles of each other. I mean, in just incredible saturation um, of food and sort of seeming consumer choice happening in a very concentrated area. Meanwhile, there are other parts of uh, Madison and the greater Madison area that have almost no options for access to a broader array of food as we think about it. This has been referred to as food deserts. People that do food politics work prefer um, food apartheid because this is a human-made issue. It is not something that's naturally occurring, uh, which the terminology of food desert really evokes. So that's, that's one example of where we're seeing concentration of things like corporate capture, where a, a whole bunch of options are concentrated and then uh, other parts of a municipality or a state or where, where we're seeing really significant um, areas in which really significant food insecurity is, is a major issue. Um, and then beyond that, you see examples of things like in certain parts of Madison, you can go and purchase baby formula and get it right off the shelves. In other parts of Madison, they are locking baby formula up and you have to ask for it, which is a very thinly veiled, I mean, that's very clear racism, that's very clear classism going on, um, where that's showing up on our shelves in the everyday. Another quick example of that, have you ever been to a cereal aisle? Lots of choices, right? I mean, many, many choices in a cereal aisle. It's a little overwhelming. It's overwhelming. Yeah. <laughs> um, that choice is sort of an illusion because all of those brands are in effect going back to, there's maybe a dozen major corporations that have all of these sort of smaller brands or seeming product uniqueness underneath them, but it's all being concentrated uh, back at the top. So it's, it's sort of an illusion of choice. I think that's something my students really struggle with I'm, I do as well, of like, what are we supposed to do <laughs> like, uh, around the question of ethical consumption? Um, I think ethical consumption under capitalism is, is not really a, a thing. Uh, it, that's very difficult to do, especially if you're working within constrained 
choices in the first place, of which many college students are, right? Uh, we have significant food insecurity here on this campus. Um, but insofar as we can learn about policies and put our resources into products, brands, community enterprises that we feel as good as we can about, that's, that's sort of what we can control on an individual level. Yeah, and, and you alluded to this already a little bit, but just to go a little more in depth, who or which groups would you say are most disproportionately disadvantaged by this global food system? If we're looking globally, it would be small-scale rural farmers uh, in particular. I, I am very wary of language that bifurcates the globe in any sort of way, so global north, global south. But if, if we were to simplify it, uh, it would be small-scale small scale rural agrarian farmers and food producers, predominantly in the global south. On a more U.S. scale or a more national scale, it would be, I, I just want to put, kind of broadly state that it's people without land. Uh, land ownership is crucial uh, for food equity, for food sovereignty, and 90, I mean, <laughs> here, here we'll put some historical context and perspective on it. Um, let's say in, prior to World War II, the number of people working in agriculture was nearly half of the U.S. labor force, right? It was most people or a huge chunk of the population was involved in agricultural labor to some degree. Um, the small-scale farm was really a significant sort of mainstay. A um, hundred years later, less than a hundred years later, we are now at 1.5% of the U.S. labor force is engaged in farming, engaged in uh, agriculture in that way. And 1% of that 1.5% are non-white farmers, right? So it is, the land ownership is so deeply concentrated among white people, the social reproduction of that is really significant when we talk about wealth over time. Um, so this is having significant fallout on how BIPOC people, in particular Black and Indigenous people, and then immigrant populations, which are predominantly coming from Mexico and other Latin American nations, are not, they don't have access to land. And that's a, that has had a real impact over time uh, in shaping access to food, food security, and questions of food equity and food sovereignty. Okay, and I have a little question that's kind of related, but this is inspired by a very long conversation I had with a friend at Indie Coffee about this class. Um, that's awesome. Yeah. How, it was a great conversation, but we talked a lot about, um, they talked a lot about American international food aid. Mm -hmm. um, and specifically, how does American international food aid factor into the world food system? And is it doing good or is it maybe doing more harm than we might think? Well, and so that's, I think it's nuanced on some level because people need food to live, right? So that food aid is a crucial program. Let's call it this. It's a safety net that shouldn't have to exist in the first place, right? Um, we have an abhorrent amount of hunger globally, 
and we have an often uh, destroying access to, I mean, we see what's happening right now, right? We're destroying access to aid um, in times of war, in times of international conflict is a, is a central mechanism, is, in, is ensuring that people are hungry is a way to control populations and maintain power. Um, so with that, I think food aid is in earnest. It's trying to do good in the same way that like food banks are trying to do good. These are not uh, organizations of like evil people. <laughs> that's, that's not what's happening. But from a standpoint of, I mean, we just, we have massive amounts of food. We have more food than we need in, in many ways. We're, the amount of food we are wasting, um, that's one that students, their mouth, their jaws drop open and it just is, it's a gut punch, the, the amount of food that we're wasting person to person um, in the United States, right? So then that, those efforts around food aid are crucial because it is getting people fed and it is also in a system that is situating hunger as a charity issue rather than a foundational issue of human rights, access to food. Uh, and I think the ways and means by which food has come become a commodity, how we think about it as something that needs to be purchased, that we don't have inherent right to or access to, um, is at the root of a, of a lot of those problems. So it's a complicated answer, but we need it to meet people's needs now as they stand. And we're also operating in a system that should not need it at all. Because mm -hmm. ideally, I know I'm talking a lot. Oh, you're good. Lot to talk about. We're interviewing you. Yeah, yeah that's fair. That's true. <laughs> uh, that's true. That's a good reminder. Uh, ideally, we are, we are not relying on imports exports right like ideally our food systems are fairly well contained because we have to be able to feed people where they are which is also why we've seen a really significant um sort of re-emphasis on local food and sort of the value of local food although local can be defined any number of ways uh, the usda defines it as 400 miles or less <laughs> so uh, I agree. Yeah, right. So, you know, those Indiana apples that you're getting or whatever. Um, but ideally, theoretically, and in terms of questions of food sovereignty, people have a significant amount of control over how food is produced, how it is disseminated within communities, how and uh, how it's consumed. And there is good news. Like there are really significant community efforts going involved there. And I think ultimately that's a that's a where a lot of the solutions lie is people really investing in their communities. But for example, if like nine counties in California are producing a lot of our produce, um, if something were to occur or befall that particular part of the country we would be in some significant trouble uh, in terms of our food ways and food access. So with that, we, there's, a, there's a, a very real thrust to, to keep food and food production contained. It's something like 
90% of food that is grown, produced, processed, disseminated stays where it is, right? It's not crossing borders in any significant way, which is odd to think about when you go to the grocery store. You're like, where are these limes coming from, right? Um, yeah, so, but there's a, that's, that's an important uh, part of it for sure. I just checked on Google Maps as you were talking yeah, to figure out what yes. is 400 miles away. Thunder Bay, Canada is less than 400 miles away. Wow, yep. Which is from Madison, which is interesting. That is interesting. Yeah, right? I mean, that context. And it depends on the organization. It depends on, I mean, the USDA has changed that definition from time to time. Um, so it depends on the entity, but local could mean anything from 50 to 500 miles, honestly. So. Yeah, and a quick question kind of going back to the international scale, sorry, just something I wanted to follow up on. Um, if the U.S. or like another country or a food aid organization, like if you're if there's an influx of food aid to like maybe a nation or an area, what happens to the local farmers in that nation or an area who are trying to sell their own goods? Um, well, I think one of it, it certainly depends on the circumstances, right? right, and the context with which this is occurring, whether this was a natural disaster or whether this is a result of conflict or war or unrest, instability. From an economic standpoint, what's most likely to happen is if food aid is coming in and it is made more widely available to people, it's going to make it all that more, it's going to make it much more difficult for small scale farmers to be able to um, sell product, right? Um, or have product purchased um, sort of in mass, right? Uh, it'll drive prices up. So that can be pretty devastating on a local scale as well. Hmm. Yeah. Is one, is one thing that can happen. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So kind of, is there anything we can do, speaking from policy standpoint, to make food systems more equitable? Hmm. Yeah. Put our resources into La Via Campesina, or like, and, and, <laughs> well, and put understanding who is doing the work of who is doing the work of of food sovereignty. And I'm not. I mean, as a framework, I think food sovereignty is one of the most useful that we have as we think about things like sustainability, as we think about how people engage in community and sort of uh, individual agency around food um because often i think I, and that's one of the things as well that not only building this course syllabus has taught me but has that the students are finding as well is like whoa we're all kind of moving through these systems almost passively in a lot of ways um when there are many things that we can do to be more readily engaged um and, and doing that work. Um, I do think that is not to suggest, it's, oh, I don't, I'm gonna do it though. I'm gonna pay lip service to, it's a very sort of cliche idea of think global and act local, <laughs> but when it, when it comes to food, I do think that that's um, one of our, one of the best ways forward is to be reinvesting in our communities um not to suggest that we shouldn't disseminate resources as we have them um, but we need to remember that people are already doing that work abroad there are incredible organizations like that are doing the work of 
reestablishing biodiversity that are teaching about sustainability and engaging those kinds of knowledges that are saving seeds and protecting them from corporate capture, which on a global scale, if something were to happen, we need seeds. That's a fascinating thing when we think kind of not to go apocalyptic, but when we think in that way, what's something that happened in the early times of COVID when we were signaled to this lockdown that was going to occur? People went and bought food and they hoarded it. Um, they bought canned food. They bought shelf-stable things. And I'm not blaming anybody. Like, certainly that's kind of the natural slant if we're living in a really individualized society. It's like, ooh, we need to protect our, our interests here uh, and make sure that we are safe and we have what we need. What we didn't talk about or really put a lot of emphasis on was... How are we going to engage communities so that we know who has what and in what ways and who knows how to grow this? Or even we have these seeds, do we know what to do with it, right? Which I, which I think is very useful knowledge. And it is largely um, indigenous communities around the world that are doing that work and that stewardship of seed protection and land protection. Yeah. Um, switching gears a little bit, there's just something in your syllabus that I just found interesting and it was a topic called the hunger industrial complex. Can you explain what the hunger industrial complex is? Are you ready to be sad all day? <laughs> It'll be okay. Or beyond. It'll be okay. Uh, so this it's, it's a, it's a phenomenon that was, uh, I don't know that Andy Fisher defined it, but he really shed some light on it. He illuminated it in his 2017 book, big hunger. And here's just an example of the mechanism. Walmart is a major corporation. It generally does not pay its employees a significant amount unless they are management, um, working full-time. They often will hire people part-time so that they can avoid having to do benefits packages, things like that. So a significant percentage of Walmart employees we can think of other corporations in relation to this as well, but Walmart's a good example. There's a significant percentage of Walmart employees that are recipients of SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, which is kind of proverbially known as food stamps, or more publicly known as meal stamps. If those Walmart employees are utilizing SNAP benefits, Walmart gets, just statistically, gets one out of every five food stamp dollars. That is billions of dollars. So Walmart is directly benefiting from keeping its employees hungry, in effect, because it is then that food stamp money, those SNAP benefits are going right back into the corporation, right? So it's a vicious system. It's the link between, in effect, food aid, SNAP benefits, food banks, right? Those things that fall underneath uh, government policy that are responsible for feeding people. Um, it's the link between that mechanism and corporations, right? And investment by corporations. And if you look at some of Feeding America, for example, is a organization which is central to like well over a hundred food banks across the United States. 
the majority of people on that board, on that board of directors, are people from Fortune 500 companies who are directly benefiting from the maintenance of hunger. <laughs> right? So uh, the hunger industrial complex defines that link between corporate influence, how corporations influence lobbyists, how this influences government policy, and how this influences food aid programs. So um, it's a mechanism that, that keeps people hungry and keeps people profiting off of that hunger. So it sucks. <laughs> yeah. am, I allowed, like, am I allowed to say that? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Going back to that Walmart example too, one thing that I couldn't stop thinking about is how I feel like Walmart generally is known as the place you go if you need to buy groceries on sure. a budget. So they're like, in effect, not only do they have employees that are maybe using Snap more often, but like the people they're marketing to. Yes. They, they're they marketing to people who might be more likely to use those benefits and earn them more money. Yes. Right. And especially if you are if you are marketing yourself as a low budget option or Snap friendly or WIC friendly, and that's women, infants and children, the uh, a subset of SNAP that's really geared toward, I mean, isn't that wild? We have a subset of a supplemental nutrition assistance program that I, like, it's good that we are identifying that women, infants, and children are more vulnerable, but it also reproduces a recognition of the feminization of poverty. And, like, we, I just have to say, our government policies around food not that we don't, we put a significant amount into SNAP. It's the majority of the funding that comes through the Farm Bill. Theoretically, the Farm Bill is a really holistic, bipartisan effort that takes the entirety of Congress to push through. We're in a really interesting time with the Farm Bill right now. But all of this, I mean, we saw during COVID, we saw that stimulus checks were lifting people out of poverty. We saw that upping SNAP, be SNAP benefits were feeding families, putting money into people's pockets. School lunch programs and school breakfast programs, which are really founded by largely Black women who were part of the Black Panthers. Right. We had that going on during COVID, and we saw what this was doing, how it was benefiting people's daily lives, and then we took it away. And I'm not, I am not trying to suggest that practices of governance are not difficult and nuanced. They are. But I would, I would adamantly argue that hunger on a large scale in the United States and beyond is a policy choice. And it's a policy choice that we keep making uh, sort of over and over again when we, we, know, we know what we could do <laughs> to alleviate a lot of it. Did I answer your question? I'm sorry. I went, Certainly, I yes. <laughs> I, I, I feel like I took it in a different direction, but yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, speaking of like alleviating, are there any resources in Madison that promote food justice and food equity? Yeah, there are. So that, and that's the, the cool thing and um, some, some good news on, on that front. And again, it is not as though food banks, so food banks service food pantries. So there's, um, there's many hundreds of food banks across the country. There's many thousands of food pantries that get dis distribution from food banks. It's not to suggest that those entities are not doing really important work because 
they are. Um, but I also, they, again, are sort of a safety net under a safety net that, like, theoretically shouldn't need to uh, exist in the way that it does. So I want to emphasize just some very cool stuff, like Slow Food UW. Yes. Right? Yeah. yeah. Like, very cool food justice stuff going on right here uh, on campus. Our uh, Division of Extension does some very cool work around food equity. We have organizations like REAP Food Group. Um, we have Madison Food Pantry Gardens, which is a collection of 10 different um, farms uh, in, the, in the sort of surrounding area of Madison, many of them in the Fitchburg and Verona area, which are entirely volunteer run. And they are, their sole purpose is to grow food to distribute it to people who need it, right? That is it. So they are supplying uh, food pantries in the area with fresh product and produce, um, which is very cool. Uh, and there's a, <laughs> there's a singular employee of Madison Food Pantry Gardens, Matt, very cool human. Um, but they're also, if you're looking for a summer internship opportunity, they have a couple, um, an opportunity to learn more about the politics of food production and farming itself. I also mm -hmm. want to shout out um, Yusuf Binrella, who was a chef. Uh, here at UW at Dejoke Residence. Oh. I worked with him my freshman year. Oh, He's iconic. Cool. Yeah, right on. Yes. And he is also the founder of Trade Roots and is doing some really awesome programming, um, cooking, food sovereignty work, uh, especially around um, the African diaspora uh, and and reconnecting people to, to those roots. So I think that's that's also to say that Questions of food equity looks like many, many things. It looks like how we grow. It looks like how we learn. It looks like how we make food accessible. Um, so it's very cool. And those are just a handful. I mean, I think about even in my own, oh, at the libraries, there's like multiple public libraries in Madison that do free seed exchange programs. You can just go and get seeds and share seeds and, um, there's other seeds. Uh, oh, Professor Kloppenberg here on campus is part of the OSSI. I'm going to forget the how to. It's a seed exchange program. Um, and it's effectively trying to bypass seed patent programs, which make it really difficult to like keep and exchange seeds. Um, so just, yeah, very, very cool um, things that are happening on a local level, on a community level. And I've tried to impress upon my students as well, uh, volunteer opportunities in the community. If you want to go work on a farm, there are many. <laughs> and, and see what that's all about and understand where local product is coming from um, and to be a part of that. And also paying attention, like when you go to the farmer's market, pay attention. Who is on the other side of that stand? We have a really significant Hmong population in Madison, right, um, who are a very significant presence at the farmer's market. So just being more conscientious, thoughtful about, and, you know, it, I, I, I really truly, on an individual level, it's the same thing that happens with conversations around climate change, where the emphasis is put on the individual of, like, bring your tote bag and your reusable cup and, and like, all awesome, but what a distraction from the main show. Um, 
food equity at the global scale is going to be uh, it is a multifaceted effort, but I think we see the the efforts of mutual aid, community governments, how we're doing food sovereignty at the local level, and a lot of that is happening is like very emboldening and where we're seeing a lot of the solution, I think. Yeah. Okay, so for our podcasts, um, on the last question, we always like to end it on a bit of a lighter note. Yay. Um, <laughs> and since we've been talking about food, and since we're recording this in, like, the late morning, um, we're wondering either, A, what's your favorite brunch spot in Madison, or B, if you're not big on going out for brunch, um, what's, like, a brunch dish you like to make at home when you have time? Yes, okay. I'll, I will answer both, because <laughs> why not? Um, I gotta say, I really do... Um, I'm a big fan of Madison sourdough. Yes. Uh, they're yeah, they it's locally sourced. It's uh, good stuff, and I've just always had really outstanding interactions with the staff there. They're just really lovely humans. Um, I do I and I'm really excited that not not to suggest that Winters Farmers Markets are not also awesome, um, but I do get excited for. The warmer months when we're entering into that season, it is really fun to go get product and to make things out of that. We're also, we are very privileged um, at my house. Uh, my partner is a significant gardener and is learning more about it all the time. So we're very lucky to produce some of our own food in that way and share it as we can. Um, he's a phenomenal cook, so yay. Uh, and he makes um, Dutch babies. You familiar? It's like a big puppy pancake that you make in a cast iron skillet huh. with Grandma Lynn's homemade strawberry jam. It's delicious. Yeah. So that's also listen. The original House of Pancakes. I know it's a national chain. But I'll be danged. Their 49er flapjacks are like the best pancakes I've ever... And you can get them all over the country, but they are <laughs> delicious. So, yeah, that's those are my that's my answers. Nice. Okay. Um, all right, Dr. Kate, thank you so much for coming on the 1050 Bascom podcast. And yeah, this has been a really enlightening discussion. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks.